me or listen on as I read from Judges chapter 15. We have been considering at various services over the last month the story of Samson in the book of Judges. So here we find ourselves at chapter 15. Begin in verse 1 and read the whole chapter. After a while, in the time of wheat harvest, it happened that Samson visited his wife with a young goat. And he said, let me go into my wife into her room. But her father would not permit him to go in. Her father said, I really thought you had thoroughly hated her. Therefore, I gave her to your companion. Is not your... Is not her younger sister better than she? Please take her instead. And Samson said to them, This time I shall be blameless regarding the Philistines if I harm them. Then Samson went and caught 300 foxes, and he took torches, turned the foxes tail to tail, and put a torch between each pair of tails. When he had set the torches on fire, He let the foxes go into the standing grain of the Philistines and burned up both the shocks and the standing grain, as well as the vineyards and olive groves. Then the Philistines said, Who has done this? And they answered, Samson, the son-in-law of the Timnite, because he has taken his wife and given her to his companion. So the Philistines came up and burned her and her father with fire. Samson said to them, since you would do a thing like this, I will surely take revenge on you, and after that I will cease. So he attacked them hip and thigh with a great slaughter. Then he went down and dwelt in the cleft of the rock of Etham. Now the Philistines went up and encamped in Judah and deployed themselves against Lehi. And the men of Judah said, why have you come up against us? So they answered, We have come up to arrest Samson, to do to him as he has done to us. Then 3,000 men of Judah went down to the cleft of the rock of Edom and said to Samson, Do you not know that the Philistines rule over us? What is this that you have done to us? And he said to them, As they did to me, so I have done to them. But they said to him, We have come down to arrest you that we may deliver you into the hand of the Philistines. Then Samson said to them, Swear to me that you will not kill me yourselves. So they spoke to him, saying, No, but we will tie you securely and deliver you into their hand, but we will surely not kill you. And they bound him with two new ropes and brought him up from the rock. When he came to Lehi, the Philistines came shouting against him, The Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon him, and the ropes that were on his arms became like flax that is burned with fire, and his bonds broke loose from his hands. He found a fresh jawbone of a donkey, reached out his hand and took it, and killed a thousand men with it. Then Samson said, with the jawbone of a donkey, heaps upon heaps, with the jawbone of a donkey I have slain a thousand men. And so it was, when he had finished speaking, that he threw the jawbone from his hand and called that place Ramath-Lehi. 
Then he became very thirsty, so he cried out to the Lord and said, You have given this great deliverance by the hand of your servant, and now shall I die of thirst and fall into the hand of the uncircumcised? So God split the hollow place that is in Lehi, and water came out, and he drank, and his spirit returned, and he revived. Therefore he called its name En-Hakor, which is in Lehi to this day. And he judged Israel 20 years in the days of the Philistines. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, would you open up our eyes? Give us eyes to see and ears to hear the truth of your word. Father, help us to see the cross of Christ, our glorious Savior crucified before our very eyes in your word. Lord, would you go before us now in this time of worship? In Christ's name we pray. Amen. We have been considering Samson over several services recently, uh, primarily in the evening services. And so by way of review, um, I want to go over a few things that we have covered For those that may not have heard the first two exhortations from uh, Judges 13 and 14, we've been considering Samson as a type of Christ, a savior that would begin to deliver God's people. We considered Samson's unusual nativity. Samson was a child of promise, called out by an angel of the Lord to be consecrated to deliver the people of God. We noted that God's people, at this point in Judges, are lost in sin. They're enslaved to the Philistines, and they're not even able to cry out to God for deliverance. Then we considered that Samson was a Nazarite from the womb. The angel of the Lord comes to his people in the midst of their spiritual barrenness and obscurity and promises a deliverer. This deliverer will be set apart or holy to God, a Nazarite. And as such, he could not touch or eat any part of the fruit of the vine, the grapes. He could not be in the presence of a dead body, and he could not cut his hair. But not just a Nazarite, for a limited period of time, Samson was to be a Nazarite from birth. The law of the Nazarite, which is found in Numbers chapter 6, requires that upon completion of the commitment that a sacrifice was to be made, a lamb was to be offered. And upon completion of Christ's work, we consider John 17 verse 4, where Christ offers himself as a sacrificial lamb upon the completion of his work. Then we consider the wonderful secret When asked for his name, the angel of the Lord replies that it is too wonderful for Manoah, Samson's father, to know. That word also means secret. And the whole next chapter is dominated, chapter 14, is dominated by the wonderful secret, the riddle of the honey that comes from the lion. The secret of the lion and the honey is is central to the narrative in chapter 14. When Old Testament Israel reads of this dead lion in the vineyard, they see a picture of the promised king from Genesis chapter 49, the Lord Jesus Christ, who must die at the hands of men 
Death roared against our Redeemer, but O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? In the honey, we find the sting of death represented in the great and mighty lion of the tribe of Judah, the Lord Jesus Christ. But we also find the sweet honey of salvation for God's people. We're just saying Psalm 81, where the life-giving waters of Meribah from the rock are called honey for God's people. As we turn to chapter 15, we will see that the work of Christ in the saving of sinners is typified in Samson once again. The deliverance of God's people would begin with Samson by pointing God's people to the Savior that would complete that work, the Lord Jesus Christ. The Philistines are seen throughout chapters 14, 15, and 16 as trying to find peace with God's people through whatever worldly means necessary. The whole narrative of Samson is a divine mocking of the world's apparent solution to the problem of sin. Chapters 13 and 14 focus on Samson as a type of Christ in Christ's humiliation, where for our sakes he emptied himself of his glory and he took on the form of a servant in his conception, his birth, his life, and his death. We love to consider Christ's first advent where he empties himself of his glory because we often make it about us and about our salvation in him. But as we turn to chapter 15, we must begin to consider Christ in his exaltation, his coming again in glory. Westminster Larger Catechism, question 56, I give to you sort of as a guideline for how to consider this. Question 56, how is Christ to be exalted in his coming again to judge the world? Christ is to be exalted in his coming again to judge the world in that he who was unjustly judged and condemned by wicked men shall come again at the last day in great power and in the full manifestation of his own glory and of his fathers with all his holy angels with a shout and the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God to judge the world in righteousness. Matthew Henry here says, The Christian religion is the religion of sinners, of such as have sinned, and in whom sin is some measure still dwells. The Christian life is a life of continued repentance, humiliation for, and mortification of sin, of continual faith in, thankfulness for, and love to the Redeemer, and hopeful, joyful expectation of the day of glorious redemption in which the believer shall be fully and finally acquitted and sin abolished forever. The worldly solution for sin will fail, beloved. In chapter 14, they figured out a way to solve Samson's riddle. But their failure and ultimate doom is foretold in the slaughter of Ashkelon, where Samson goes and takes 30 of their men and takes their clothing to repay his debt. In chapter 15, which we just read, the peace seems to come in Samson's absence. 
They think that he's gone. He's not to be worried about any longer. And they've given his wife to his best man. But their future is again foretold in the flaming foxes running through the ready-to-harvest fields and burning them to the ground. The world seeks to resolve this loss by burning to death the Timnite woman and her father. This is the very threat that they made if she didn't manipulate Samson for the answer to the riddle. So the latest solution is to get 3,000 men of Judah to bind Samson, which appears to be successful, until Samson breaks the bonds of what is sure death at the hands of the Philistines and deals the death blow to a thousand of them. And this pattern continues on till the end of the narrative. As soon as the world thinks they've won, they lose again and again. The enemies of God will be destroyed and mocked. Samson sings a song over their death to seal the mockery. There is great peril in being an enemy of God. Worldly success is not success, beloved. Part of the point here for the people of God is not to be focused on the world or the cares of the world. The world and its apparent successes will end in failure. 1 John chapter 2 says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the eye, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life, is not the Father, is not of the Father, but is of the world. The world is passing away and the lust of it, but he who does the will of God abides forever. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, The Christian is a man that expects nothing from the world. He does not pin his hopes on it because he knows that it is doomed. No, worldly success is not success. The world, and in this case the Philistines, will reap what they sow. It is far too easy to look around and see the Philistine dominance. After all, they sent an entire army after Samson. The world looks like they have everything figured out, and we innately want what they have. In a sense, we envy the world, but give no quarter to the world in your heart. Let not sin reign in your mortal bodies. Do not love the world or anything in the world. The world is passing away, and we often forget that the world is passing away. We look around us, and we want more of the world. We find ways to baptize our worldliness. We want to fight the good fight by utilizing the weapons of the world. But the Lord doesn't give us the weapons of the world. We don't need more cultural engagement. We don't need more soup kitchens or community services. We don't need more tolerance of the world and its worldliness. We don't need to be at peace with the world like Judah so desperately sought here with Samson. We won't find peace with God in the world and its worldly solutions. What do we need? The gospel, the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ, his coming as a child, his emptying of himself, of his glory, his taking upon the form of a servant, his conception, his birth, his life, his death, 
and after his death until his resurrection. His resurrection, his ascension, his sitting at the right hand of God the Father, and his coming again to judge the world. How does the Spirit communicate this to us? By attendance to the ordinary means of grace, especially the word, the sacrament, and prayer. The Apostle Paul calls the preaching of the cross of Christ portrayed before our very eyes in Galatians 3. What is Samson here given? A jawbone. So we'll consider, thirdly, the victory at Lehi with the jawbone. Lehi means jawbone. And this word frames the narrative in verses 9 and 17. It's a central idea to the narrative. This shows the significance of the jawbone, that it is set out at the front and at the end of the passage. Even in verse 19, the place is renamed, but jawbone, Lehi, comes up again. Therefore, he called its name En-Hakor, which is in jawbone to this day. But Samson changes the name to En-Hakor, which means spring of the caller, because it is ultimately the spring of the of God's salvation to those who cry out to him. It is significant that in verse 9, it is the Philistines that come up against Lehi or against Jawbone. It could have been said that they came up against the people of God or against Judah, but no, they have come up against Lehi, against Jawbone. We'll look deeper into the significance of the jawbone meaning later. The binding of Samson begins to become an obsession of the Philistines, starting with this section of the narrative in Lehi. The word translated arrest here is the word bind. This fixation on binding him comes to a head in chapter 16 as Delilah seeks for a way to bind him. But you'll have to come back tonight to hear more on that. The narrative makes it clear that it is the spirit that comes upon Samson mightily as the source of his strength, as spiritual and not natural. While they may know it, it is the spirit that the world seeks to quench. I'm sorry. While they may not know it, it is the spirit that the world seeks to quench. The world hates God, but Samson allows himself to be bound. The world, typified by the Philistines here, think that they have won. The Savior of the people of God has been handed over, bound by his own people. It is Judah that binds and turns him over. William McEwen, who's an unknown Puritan preacher, wrote... Of Samson. It was strange the Israelites did not join together under such a redoubtable champion to take off the shameful yoke of the Philistines, but they were so lost to all sense of shame and gratitude as to treat the deliverer of their country like the betrayer of it. They bind by his own consent their judge and avenger and traitorously deliver him up to their tyrants and oppressors 
Even so, the avenger of the human race, the Lord Jesus Christ, was basely delivered up by his own countrymen who had received many favors from him into the hands of the Gentiles. But without his consent, Judah, Judas, with all his rout, could not have bound him. O Savior of the world, thy love to men and obedience to God were the invisible but mighty cords that held thee fast. We consider next how divine justice will be satisfied. Several times we see the sin of the people is met with a proportionate consequence. This is the substance of getting what you deserve. Isn't this what we teach our children? There will be a consequence. I think I say that every day. If you do that, you will get what you deserve. This is the idea of lex talionis, the doctrine of perfect justice or an eye for an eye. We see that the crafty treatment of the Philistines is met with the crafty foxes. God's purposes are achieved without man. It is the foxes that are used to bring forth his divine vengeance. Matthew Henry says, By the meanness and weakness of the animals he employed, he designed to put contempt upon the, upon the enemies he fought against. The very threat that the Philistine men used against Samson's wife to get her to betray him and to divulge his riddle is now carried out on them. This is the classic dig a pit and fall into it yourself. Matthew Henry again. When a barbarous Philistine sets fire to a treacherous one, the righteous rejoice to see the vengeance. Thus shall the wrath of God praise men. Henry's here quoting Psalm 58 and Psalm 76. Then we see that Samson smites the men that killed his adulterous wife and her treacherous father. Perfect justice is here demonstrated in multiple ways. But the moral lesson for the people of God is that the consequences of sin is death. Sin is met with its perfect match, death. For the wages of sin is death, Paul says in Romans. We see next that the the, the deliverer is treated like the betrayer. Rather than rallying behind their Savior... In this great assault on their enemies, they turn on their deliverer and turn him in like a betrayer. Verse 10. And the men of Judah said, why have you come up against us? So they answered, we have come up to arrest or we have come up to arrest Samson to do to him as he has done to us. It is Samson's own people that turn their Savior over to his, to his enemies. I hope it's becoming clear what this story is preparing God's people for in the end. Judah. Judah holds a special place within the people of God. Because Judah, it is of Judah that Jacob says the scepter will not depart in Genesis chapter 49 meaning that the Savior King will come from the line of Judah. In the book of Judges, it was Judah that was to be the deliverer of the people of God. If you read the very first 
two verses of the book. Judges chapter 1. Now after the death of Joshua, it came to pass that the children of Israel asked the Lord, saying, Who shall be the first to go up for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? And the Lord said, Judah shall go up. Indeed, I have delivered the land into his hand. Instead, it is Judah that will bind and turn over their deliverer. Remember, this is a people that had forgotten about God. Samson is the first narrative in the book that starts out without the people of God crying out for salvation from God. They are so lost in their sin that they do not even cry out to God. They're completely consumed in their sin and misery. Lost in sin and without hope. And the angel of the Lord comes to this lost and barren people with no hope, promising a Savior that will deliver them from their sin, typified by the Philistines. Matthew Henry here says, Sin dispirits men, nay, it infatuates them, and hides from their eyes the things that belong to their peace. Blinded by their own sin, they turn on their deliverer. They foolishly blame the Philistines. Do you not know that the Philistines rule over us? What is this that you have done to us, Samson? But it is, in fact, their own sin that rules over them. The men of Judah see deliverance as a threat to the peace that they had with the world and with the Philistines. God does not call us to negotiate with sin and evil, but to wage war on them. We must put to death the sin that remains in our flesh. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey its lust, for sin shall not have dominion over you. So who will save the people of God? This is the question that the story of Samson has been addressing since the very beginning. Samson agrees to be bound and taken to the Philistines, led as a lamb to the slaughter, you might say. Just as the lion in the previous chapter came roaring, so the Philistines come roaring against Samson in verse 14. When he came to Lehi, the Philistines came shouting against him. Then the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon him. The Spirit of the Lord comes mightily upon him, and he slays a thousand men. What a blessed type or picture of our Savior we see in Samson's willingness to be led to what is certain death at the hands of the Philistines. But the work is not done what a great victory we see as the enemies of God are vanquished. The foe is cast down. What a mighty man, despised and betrayed by the world. Praise God for the living parable of Samson. Even death could not bind our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. William McEwen again. Thy love to men and obedience to God were the invisible mighty cords that held thee fast. These, and not the nails that transfixed thy hands and feet, hindered thee to save thyself and come down from the cross. But the triumphing of the wicked was short. 
For when they vainly imagined they had him sure and safe fastened on the cross and laid in the grave, he starts up a dreadful adversary. The cords of death are not able to hold him out of weakness. He is made strong. And though all nations compassed him, yet in the name of the Lord, he did destroy them. So we see next that the weapons of the world will fail. The focus of the entire narrative is no longer on the strength of the Philistines or the strength of the world. The 3,000 men of Judah that have betrayed their deliverer. The focus is no longer on the deception or the divine mocking of the enemies of God or any of the other drama. An entire army is brought here up against one man. It might as well have been the entire world against one man. So why do we have a donkey's jawbone? Meredith Klein, in his commentary on the book of Zechariah, discusses a particular type of donkey that was described as the cult of a donkey used in ancient Hittite covenant rituals. This was the animal that was actually split in half during the cutting of a covenant. Additionally, the image of a donkey would have had a particular impact on the sons of Judah because of the blessing from Jacob. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 49. Hopefully we're becoming more and more familiar with Genesis chapter 49. Verse 10. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the people, binding his donkey to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He washed his garments in wine and his clothes in the blood of grapes. And here, through the living parable of Samson, Yahweh is preparing his people for their Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, that would come riding into Jerusalem on the colt of a donkey, a covenant donkey, to vanquish the enemies of God by offering himself up as a sacrifice. I am here, Christ is saying. I am the fulfillment of the covenant promises made to your father Abram. I am that exceedingly great reward promised to Abram. I'm the Savior that will deliver you from your enemies, even sin itself. I will come to judge the world. It's odd that these 3,000 men of Judah did not immediately recognize the, the victory Samson was accomplishing and joined in his efforts. Matthew Henry notes that even cowards can strike a falling enemy. We'll come back to this thought in a little bit. There is a sense here of the final victory of Christ at the end of the age when he will return and vanquish once and for all the enemies of God's people. This is the advent that we look forward to each week as we gather together. Worship, beloved, is a picture of that last day. It's a picture of the day where we are all gathered together up with Christ and worship for eternity. But it will not be so for the world. They will be utterly destroyed 
by the covenant-keeping King, the Lord Jesus Christ. We see finally what a great salvation. We come at last to the conclusion of the narrative. And now I thirst. Verse 18. Then he became very thirsty. So he cried out to the Lord and said, You have given this great deliverance by the hand of your servant. And now shall I die of thirst and fall into the hand of the uncircumcised? So God split the hollow place that is in Lehi and water came out and he drank and his spirit returned and he revived. Therefore, he called its name En-Hakor, which is in Lehi to this day. And he judged Israel 20 years in the days of the Philistines. For the first time since being introduced to Samson, we see Samson's physical frailty on display. Samson here owns his position as a servant of God, as a servant of the Most High for the first time. Crying out to Yahweh has been part of the repeated pattern of the book all throughout Judges up until the Samson narrative. The people of God cried out to Yahweh in chapter 3, verse 9, in chapter 3, verse 15, in chapter 4, verse 3, in chapter 6, verse 6, in chapter 6, verse 7, in chapter 10, verse 12, and so forth. But this has not occurred in the Samson narrative until now. And for the first time in the Samson narrative, he cries out to God, You have given this great deliverance or salvation by the hand of your servant, and now shall I die of thirst and fall into the hand of the uncircumcised. Our Lord, the true Samson, when on the cross, cries out, I thirst in John, demonstrating his own humanity and also fulfilling the prophecy from Psalm 22. That's John chapter 19, if you want to look it up. God's response is to split the rock at Lehi, or Jawbone. God splits the rock at Jawbone, and water pours out. At this point in the story, every discerning Israelite is thinking of the rock at Meribah that was split and watered the entire nation while in the desert. But here now, the rock is split and Samson is revived. He is saved. In 1 Corinthians 10, right before the institution of the Lord's Supper, Paul makes the point that the spiritual rock is Christ himself broken for our transgressions. 1 Corinthians 10. First Corinthians 10, verse 1. Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that our fathers were under the cloud. All passed through the sea. All were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. All ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank of that spiritual rock that flowed, that flowed them. And that rock was Christ. But with most of them, God was not well pleased, for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Samson changes the name of the spring 
of life to Enhakur, which is the spring of the caller. Beloved of Christ, when you cry out to God, He not only hears you when He prays, when you pray, He answers them and is even able to open up springs of grace in high places. Samson could have left the name Jawbone Hill or Jawbone Height. Ramath Lehi, that would have brought him much glory. It would have been about his work. A fitting name for the victory over the Philistines and the beginning of the great deliverance of God's people. But instead, he renames the place after his own dependence and neediness before the king of the universe, the spring of the collar. What a beautiful way to see our salvation in Christ. Verse 19 says that the spring of the collar is still there, indicating that this, that this spring from the rock does not run dry. It is the Lord Jesus Christ, the water of life that you must drink from and never thirst again. He says, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. The richness of this well does not run dry. And it flows forth like the waters of Meribah, saving God's people. Later on, Ezekiel would envision this spring from the rock as a life-giving river. Directly from the side of the temple. Clearly a picture of the water that flowed from Christ's side as he hung on the cross. Turn with me to Ezekiel 47. Then he brought me back to the door. This is the third major vision in the book of Ezekiel and the final one of the temple. Then he brought me back to the door of the temple, and there was water flowing from under the threshold of the temple toward the east. For the front of the temple faced east. The water was flowing from under the right side of the temple, south of the altar. He brought me out by way of the north gate. And led me around on the outside of the outer gateway that faces east. And there was water running out on the right side. And when the man went out to the east, the line, the line in his hand, he measured 1,000 cubits and brought me through the waters. The water came up to my ankles. Again, he measured 1,000 and brought me through the waters. The water came up to my knees. Again, he measured 1,000 and brought me through. The water came up to my waist. Again, he measured 1,000. And it was a river that I could not cross, for the water was too deep. Water in which one must swim. A river could not be crossed. That could not be crossed. He said to me, Son of man, have you seen this? Then... He brought me and returned me to the bank of the river. When I returned there, along the bank of the river, were very many trees on one side and on the other side. And he said to me, this water flows toward the eastern region, goes down into the valley, and then there's the sea. Where it reaches the sea, its waters are healed. And it shall be that every living creature that moves, wherever the river goes, will live. 
There will be a very great multitude of fish because these waters go there, for they will be healed, and everything will live wherever the river goes. But it shall be that fishermen will stand by it from En Gedi to En Gilem. They will be places for spreading their nets. Their fish will be the same kinds as the fish of the great sea, exceedingly many. But its swamps and marshes will not be healed. They will be given over to the salt along the bank of the river. On this side of that will grow all kinds of trees used for food. Their leaves will not wither and their fruit will not fail. They will bear fruit every month because the water flows from the sanctuary. Their fruit will be for food and their leaves for medicine. This life-giving water provides healing and everlasting life. Remember that it is just the beginning of deliverance for God's people as we look forward to the final day. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Let us look at this river of life in Revelation chapter 22. The first three verses. And we'll close with this thought. And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the middle of its street and on either side of the river was the tree of life, which bore twelve fruits, each yielding its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and the Lamb shall be in it. And his servants shall serve him. They shall see his face, and his face shall be on their foreheads. There shall be no night there. They need no lamp nor light of the sun, for the Lord God gives them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. What a great salvation indeed. Amen.